Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, this is a historical day. It is December the 6th, 2022, and finally, Harmon Dial gets to talk about a Canuck victory the night before we do our latest episode of the VanCast. And what a victory it was, Harm. They snatched victory from the jaws of defeat twice. All's well on the Canuck bandwagon, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was the most unlikely circumstances too, wasn't it? I mean... 4-0 down, I tweeted something to the effect of this This game is really, really tough to watch, but it's exactly what the Canucks need because this organization will take any opportunity to cling on to, to hope and, and this needs to get ugly so that this franchise can be reminded that they need to essentially rebuild things. And as soon as that, as soon as that happened, when it came to the second period and Connor Garland scored to make things 4-1 and it quickly became 4-2, immediately I was like, oh, they're going to win this. Just because I tweeted that, I was like, this is, I legit, in um, in my uh, group text with a few friends, I was like, they're legit going to win this. I, I was like, you, get, you guys, I don't know how many of you guys bet, but bet on them winning just because I'm going to end up with egg all over my face. So uh, that was unreal, especially, the one thing I will say is when, Montreal sort of came back and scored and and made it six five with uh, with three minutes left. Did anybody honestly believe that they were going to hold on to that lead? I think of all the times I've watched a Canucks game, especially watching this team, I've never been less confident in a lead being held as at Montreal six five. Especially shortly thereafter, when uh, the Canucks drew the power play, I was like, "This is." I was like, "There's no way they lose this." zero chance and to think even in the grand scheme of things that they found a way to that the Canucks did um it to blow a 5-4 lead in a game where they were down 4-0 and then come back and win I've never I've honestly never watched a game like that yeah I mean I looked at it when they were up 5-4 and I thought to myself there's still too much time left here right and when not only did they give up the 6-5 goal Think about the way it went in, uh, you know, off of Quinn Hughes. I mean, every definition of an own goal, um, unfortunate break. And I kind of thought... His first he, of the year? Yeah, exactly. His first of the year. And I kind of thought he got caught napping a little bit on the game tying goal uh, that made it 5-5 because it looked like it was his man. And, you know, obviously a bad bounce that came back and left the Habs with an empty net to score that. And then uh, and then the next one just goes in off of him. Um and then when they got the power play, you thought, okay, well, the way this game is going, I mean, it's just been theater for the bazaar. So, and at that point, nothing just nothing surprises you anymore. And Drancer said that, and he was so right. He called it, he called this an everything bagel in that it, it it had everything that was good and bad in the Canucks in it all at the same time, right? I mean, when Vancouver was out shooting Montreal ten one, 
And, you know, Nils Hoaglander had an incredible chance. They were really outplaying him in the first eight, eight and a half minutes of the game. You knew the Habs were going to score, right? Like, it was just going to go that way. You just yeah, didn't... you tweeted it. You called it. They. Sc- I, I, literally, I literally hit send as the pass was making its way to Cole Caulfield. Like, I'm, it, it actually happened like that. And the pass made its way to Caulfield, and he scored. And it wasn't a great goal, right? Went short side. and um, Yeah, but I didn't think, as much as the Canucks have had this propensity of once you give up one, you give up a second one immediately, I didn't think they'd give up four, right? And we'll get into what that means for Spencer Martin and all that stuff a little bit later here. But um, this game had everything good and bad about the Vancouver Canucks in it all at once, right? From a team that is so fragile that if they don't get some early success, you know it's going to cave in on them. When they give up the first, you know they're going to give up the second. They've got the offensive dynamic ability to score and get back in games. Um, you know, like just every level of it. Can't hold leads. Play on the, you know, do great things in the power play. Like everything about this team, good, bad, or indifferent, was on display in this game. Elias Pedersen. You know, being incredible. Yeah. Uh, Bo Horvat yet again scoring and doing his thing. Like, you know, JT the Miller turnover, but yeah, then yeah, him just, also bailing them out on the power play. Yeah, like all of it, right? Like, just it was incredible to watch, right? I mean, the only thing they didn't get was great goaltending, which they have opportunities to get from time to time, right? Like, you know, we do know that Demko has that in him, and Spencer Martin has shown that to us from time to time this season. Uh, and you know, obviously, when you get thirteen goals in a game, you're not going to get a lot of great goaltending, but. Other than that, everything this Canuck team has to offer was there, and it was the good and bad, but it it's kind of what we've always said, right? That this team, until they can play, I don't know that we want them playing low event hockey, but until they can find some level of consistency, right? There's just so many highs and lows with this team you know, where they can win five of six and they're a point out of a playoff spot, you know, as far as actual points are concerned. And then, you know, then all of a sudden five, one, five, one losses, right? Like until they can gain some level of consistency, this team can't be taken seriously. And all of that was put into one potpourri of a hockey game last night. I really like the way Jez on Twitter put it. He he said something to the effect that if the Canucks were a car, they have the front of a McLaren and the rear of a beat-down Honda Civic in <laughs> in terms of their contrast offensively versus what they are defensively. And I just thought that's the most... That, isn't that just the best way to kind of put it, where they have this really shiny, explosive top end, and it's so fun and so exciting, but then in terms of actual stability, um, sometimes in just the basic getting from point A to point B, um, just getting the basic job done, Sometimes they they let you down in the in the worst moments. So there's that, and and also I gotta say, Elias Pettersson capping it off with the OT winner dunking on Mike Matheson after the hit that uh, obviously Matheson had on Pettersson in his rookie year. That that was I think that was the perfect way to put it up uh, to end it, especially with Matheson kind of just um, lying on the lying on the ice there for a second after he he kind of fell over. Pettersson didn't even give him much of a um, much of a, a push. He was already kind of falling. So there was really no plea case there for, for a penalty, but for him to kind of cap off the night too, especially after two huge plays in the third period to set up um, Mikheyev's goals, the first one behind the net, so patient, 
and and kind of just prodding. The one thing I'll say about that uh, that uh, assist he had on McKeev's goal, the one where Pedersen was kind of behind behind the net waiting, you can see the amount of respect that defensemen have for Pedersen just in the in the space that they kind of gave him in that moment, where when a player has the puck right behind the net like that. In most situations, the defender is going to aggressively close and try and strip the puck away. For Pedersen, it felt like he had three, four, five seconds where he was just kind of standing there waiting and, and searching for the perfect pass, which I, I thought like, wow, like that that's a lot of respect that they're, that the defenders are so scared that if they essentially try and close and that Pedersen's going to make them look like a fool and that that you know, it's going to immediately result in an uncontested scoring chance. I thought that spoke volumes. And then, and then obviously he had the uh, other cross scene pass to feed uh, McKayev as well, which helped spark the comeback. Uh, it was, you know, Pedersen. I mean, there's so many good performances to talk about offensively, but him once again, leading the way and capping off the victory now playing at a, at a hundred point pace. Incredible. Just incredible, uh, you know, and and you're right. Like he showed all of it, and that goal. I asked him. Uh, sorry, I didn't ask him. It was who asked him about it. Um, might have been Faber. Anyway, but he was asked after the game just about that Mike Matheson play and whether or not you know he felt a little revenge for that. And you know, he he got into you know that that PD dark side mode and just said no comment. So, you know, it, he doesn't forget though. No, he doesn't. And I don't know that in the moment that's what he's thinking, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. it, it's all about the game at that moment. And you can't think about four years ago. But uh, certainly when it, when he scored, that um, that absolutely added to it. But wow, like just uh, so much, so much meat on that bone in the game last night. And, you know, we still continue to talk about Brock Besser going into this game. And, um, you know, what he went through in the last 48 hours and the reports. And, you know, I asked him about it after the game again, you know, about a change of scenery and probably not the best time to necessarily ask it after a win like that. But what was your takeaway from Besser's performance? And, you know, this guy goes from being on essentially what should have been a healthy scratch on Saturday night to now playing on the top line with Pedersen in this game. Yeah, I thought he fared pretty well in, in terms of fitting on that. Um top line the the benefit of that sort of fit is that because McKayev's on the other wing you don't necessarily have to worry about uh, a lack of speed which was a bit of my concern when you when uh, they had um say Horvat Miller on the Miller on one of the wings and then Besser on the other was with Miller and Besser not that Miller's slow but it just felt like they needed um they needed a little bit more speed on the flanks Whereas I think the fit with Besser and Mikheyev as your two wing two wingers with um with Pedersen works really well. And and we saw it even early in the game where Besser kind of had um a gorgeous move nearly setting up um I think was it was it Mikheyev on the back door or was it Hoaglander? I can't exactly remember who was actually on the ice on, on that shift. But, no, no, it was it was um, Hoaglander, it was a big time right. chance. Yeah. Yeah, like that was that was the sort of play showing confidence and poise, which um you want to see at a Besser. It was sort of part of his career sort of evolution is he maybe lost a little bit of a little bit of his fastball in terms of being able to snipe goalies from the perimeter. So to continue to make an offensive impact, he, he needed to find other ways to be a little bit more well-rounded. And those are the sorts of plays that um, he 
over the last few seasons when he's been at his best, he's able to set up on a more consistent basis. Of course, ended up um, pretty close to um, to scoring when uh, he, he had the partial break th- thanks to the stretch pass from OEL. I thought that line was cycling the puck, puck in the offensive zone. And given how well Kuzmenko as a whole had fit on that line, I think it would have been fair to wonder if that, um, you know, if they would have had a fit, if, if that would have maybe messed up the chemistry um, in the in the middle six at all, even with the trickle down effect of how would Kuzmenko look on a different line. But I thought Besser looked uh, looked pretty good there. And I think it's if he can mesh there, um, especially given how well Pedersen is um, is playing, like when when you give me that line on, on paper, Mikheyev, Pedersen, Besser, Going into the season, the one concern I would have had before knowing the the kind of breakout Pedersen's obviously had now is um, Mikheyev and Besser, obviously, like the playmaking load really is on Pedersen, right? Like we know that uh, we know that Besser kind of like with the Hoaglander chance, he can make plays here and there, but he doesn't have the dynamic ability. And while Mikheyev has the speed, he's not a natural playmaker. So for that combination to work, you're really relying on Pedersen to create a ton of chances which means that he kind of needs to be at the peak of his um, game in terms of his vision and his offensive zone reads and um, how he's drawing defenders and creating space for Mikheyev and Besser because both are kind of complementary drivers. I think that's the reason it's worked as well is because Patterson's playing some of the best hockey uh, of his uh, career. Yeah, and when they first put that line together, I mean, my thought was you know, similar to what yours was in, in just in terms of speed concern, right? Like, I mean, Mikheyev has got such dynamic speed and Besser doesn't. Besser in the last couple of games hasn't looked noticeably slow at all, right? Like when when he's been able to get stretch passes and when he's been able to drive wide, like he's he's shown an ability to do that. I'm not saying he's fast. He just doesn't look slow. And that cycle game between him and Pedersen has been missing. There aren't necessarily two other players that can play it the way those two do. So I, I do think it managed to fit well. Um, and, uh, you know, and let's, uh, let's talk a bit more about Besser big picture, because obviously we've seen the reports that the Canucks have given Besser's agent an opportunity to go out and explore trades for his client. And when he was asked about it, uh, two games ago, you know, Besser offered a no comment, you know, and, and I kind of framed it a little bit differently, uh, this time in that, you know, I this is what I think when it comes to Brock Besser. And I've said I think the Canucks should trade him, right? And that's not a shot at the player. Yeah. I think he's still going to have a good career, but I just don't think it's going to be here. I think we're always going to get an insane level of inconsistency with his play. Uh, we're going to see those moments where he gets into a goal-scoring drought. It completely affects every aspect of his game. And, you know, I just think there's more expectations on him here than there would be on him elsewhere. And I think he'd be able to thrive elsewhere more than he will here. Um, he's, like I said, the the injuries are real. I know Drancer tried to downplay it earlier. He is an injury-prone player. He's an incredibly inconsistent, streaky player. I think the best thing they can do is resuscitate his value and move on from him. The fact that they've allowed the agent to explore means they themselves have tried and haven't been able to come up with a suitable option. And he, he just makes too much money for the value that he's got, right? And, and look, from Besser's perspective... He's been through so much on and off the ice. Obviously, the last couple of seasons with his father and what he went through, I think there was a feeling on his part that, uh, you know, that's that's now behind me and I can now really have a breakout 
type season here now, you know, not thinking about Duke all the time and, and all of those types of things. But I think sometimes change needs to be complete. And there's still so much similarity around him, um, you know, beyond what happened with his father. And certainly uh, he's got an affinity for these players because they helped him through a lot. And when his dad was going through it and when his dad ultimately passed, everybody in that room felt it. And that meant so much to Brock. So I do think he's got a real, real love and affection for the guys in this room. You know, I think he he has similar feelings towards the marketplace. But at the end of the day, change is change. And for him, I believe full change is the best. And I asked him about that after the game. I said, you know, or sorry, after the morning skate, I said, you know, sometimes um, you've been through so much. Can change be a positive thing? Well, I wasn't necessarily asking him to reference the reports, you know, and he said, yeah, I've never been through anything like this. And I think he still focused the whole thing on hockey and being scratched, which wasn't my point in the question. But, you know, do, do you understand kind of wh- where I'm coming from in that, that a complete change for him, a real fresh start as opposed to just a new season? Yeah, I, 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 I totally my, get what you mean. You know, especially because the group's been through so many highs and lows themselves like themselves and it's been kind of the same group so you kind of sometimes do need a fresh environment i mean i i've talked to players in the past where even when nashville came into town recently maybe about a month ago um i was talking to a player on there who had um who'd been who'd been traded at at some point and especially in relation to expectations and this is this is i think where it really ties back into besser where um, that player that I was kind of chatting with said that when he was on his last team, he just given where just just given where he was kind of drafted and and what the team initially thought his ceiling would be, he always felt like he had this pressure of living up to that expectation. And it wasn't just the external pressure and expectation, but that when you think about hyper competitive athletes, one thing I've realized is that no matter how harsh we are as media, as fans, most of them, if they're driven the right way, they're going to be more hard on themselves than anybody else. And that has an impact where when they're struggling and and failing to kind of live up, live up to the lofty expectations that are in a given market that they, that they sort of believe that maybe they should, that they have an obligation to live up to, a lot of times they can end up beating themselves up and it can be, and it can become sort of a, a, a toxic vicious cycle mentally so even sort of in that situation the player said he was just so grateful to come in that in that situation to another team to where he could like it was a fresh set of expectations he wasn't all of a sudden expected to come in and save the franchise and um, be a game breaking forward all those sorts of uh things and it just create and it just took the weight off you could you could tell how much more ease you know that player was at and i mean i even think about the problem with Brock, Bess- Brock Besser and, and kind of the scenario that he's been in in this market is his rookie year set such a high bar that it sort of you've always been left wanting more in terms of in terms of thinking about the player that he could be right because when he came into the year came in as a rookie scored the twenty nine goals in the sixty odd games. Uh, at one point in December, he was, I think, right around the NHL leading goals. You thought that's a franchise winger, potentially a guy who every year is going to be scoring 30, 40 goals. That was what everybody was dreaming dreaming about, especially seeing the cannon of a shot that he had. And no matter how, it didn't matter that he was all of a sudden 
even let's say in the 2019-20 season, nestling in as uh, a valuable second line winger, there was in this market, even back then, I don't know if you remember the amount of people at that time who were saying, um, well, Besser's overrated because he's playing on that top, uh, playing on that top line. He's riding on the coattails of that lotto line. Um, Vertanen, oh, look at Vertanen's breakout. He deserves a greater opportunity. Keep Vertanen, trade Besser. Like even when Besser would play decent, I'm not saying when he was uh, playing at his best, but even when he, when he was productive, it felt like there was always that um, yearn for more. And it kind of reminds me of uh, the John Marino situation in Pittsburgh, where Marino had this rookie season where he had scored 40 points. Uh, he looked like a top pairing stud in Pittsburgh. And so in subsequent seasons, Marino was still a solid sort of second pairing sort of guy. But every, everybody within the Penguins, with the front office, with the fan base, they all expected him to be this top pair defenseman on off of you know what he had shown as a rookie. And as a result, the perception of Marino in, 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 in Pittsburgh just wasn't working out. You could see in Marino's game as well that he wasn't as confident that it was eating him up a little bit mentally too. And so you saw what happened where when he got traded to New Jersey, it kind of just hit the reset button. He came to New Jersey and all of a sudden, you know, that, that was a relatively deep blue line. He wasn't expected to um, be a top pairing guy. He just needed to do his job. And I think that's similar to what a fresh start could potentially do for Besser is he doesn't have to necessarily be this top line um, 35 goal scoring winger if, if he goes somewhere else. He just needs to do his job as... Um, let's say a, a 25 goal scorer who can play responsible two-way hockey. And uh, when we come back after the break, we'll talk about what it might take to make a Brock Besser trade happen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Harm, if the Canucks have given Besser's agent an opportunity to go out and look for a trade, and again, Besser has not demanded a trade. He's just open to it. There's an acknowledgement on both sides that a change might be best. I absolutely concur. What's proper value or should it matter? At this point, should it be good enough for them to clear out the salary of $6.7 million per season for the next couple of years, bring back that opportunity cost? We know what's coming. And essentially, it's got to be part of a bigger plan, right? I mean, to just remove Besser as a one-off doesn't significantly alter the look of this team. It helps your cap on a short-term basis. You know, and, and you've got Pedersen's contract coming down the road. You've got, you know, Bess or uh, Horvat's a completely different kettle of fish. And then you've also got Kuzmenko that you've got to make a decision on. But is it simple enough to just move him for a second round draft pick to not have to retain, to not have to put in a sweetener? Is that good enough? Or do they need to find tangible, immediate value? Well, I don't think it's possible to find tangible immediate value right now anyway. Uh, maybe if there's a scenario where he resuscitates his trade value and, and or resuscitates his play and, and the landscape sort of changes. But I think um, even just at this point, 
management would be happy to sort of offload the contract and not take any money back, which even that isn't necessarily a guarantee. There are a couple of sort of, um, I think, issues at play. Obviously, there's the bigger picture market direction where you look at the Oliver Bjorkstrand trade, for example. That's a perfect example of how the, the we've talked about this a lot, the, the market for scoring wingers who aren't elite um, has cratered significantly in terms of their trade value. But also with Besser specifically, you're looking at a player who, like from an on-ice perspective, I think the number one sort of issue is that in terms of perception and how he could be viewed, I don't think Besser has scored enough at even strength over the past few years. Like I think I, I worry that teams will look at that because and and really look at that as a red flag because looking at the numbers individually between the 2019-20 and 2021-22 campaign so you know essentially in the in the three seasons uh before this one Besser scored 0.69 goals per 60 minutes at 5 on 5 individually that ranks him 179th out of 326 NHL forwards in that sort of sample it puts him in the same territory as the likes of Garnett Hathaway our Ivan Barbashev and Denis Gurionov so my worry is that how many teams will frame Besser as an oft-injured, one-dimensional player who doesn't score consistently enough at 5-5 five and five to justify his $6.66 million cap hit? Now, I guess the... A lot, and they should. They should. And, you know, in terms of an upside case, um, the I guess, you know, the the scenario I laid out is, you know, if you're if you're bearish on him, the bullish case would be, Besser still over his career has scored at a 29 goal, 64 points per 82 games pace over his NHL career. Now the per 82 games pace obviously is, uh, it's a caveat given that um, in he, he has been injured and he hasn't always played uh, full seasons. However, his overall production, the fact that he's still 25 and relatively young and the fact that you can pick him up for a cheap price, you know, it, it should still make him an intriguing player for 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 teams that need scoring help help especially because he's shown at earlier points that in past seasons that he can play more complete two-way hockey than what he's shown so far the problem for for me in terms of executing a trade logistically it's not so much the cap hit but rather the term beyond the season that's kind of the big obstacle i mean i wrote wrote about this this wrote about it this morning where i walked through a couple of scenarios there are teams that actually need scoring depth who I'm sure would look at Besser um, as an optimal fit as a player where you look at the New York Rangers, for example, desperately need another top six right winger. They've had to resort to Jimmy VC in a top line role at points this season. Let that sink in. We saw Jimmy VC in Vancouver. Wow. The guy's not a top top line caliber forward. So I'm sure they'd welcome a player of Besser's ilk with open arms. In, and when you look at their cap scenario, New York could find potentially a way to, to fit Besser's pro-rated cap hit this season since they'll have accrued enough space by the trade deadline. But the final two years of his deal are impossible to fit. I mean, the Rangers going into this offseason, for example, it's like, you can fit his contract. If I'm the Rangers, I can fit his contract in for the rest of this season uh, close to the deadline. But then I can't afford to keep him on the books because they're entering an offseason where they have $66 million committed to just 12 players and a bunch of crucial RFA contracts coming up. Like you're, you just can't afford. I mean, Minnesota's in a similar spot, right? The Wild, their scoring has plummeted compared to last season, especially because of Kevin Fiala's departure. 
They don't score enough outside of that top line with uh, Kaprizov and Zuccarello. And they have, I think, over $10 million in, in, in um, cap room uh, by, by the time they get to the deadline, according to Cap Friendly. So they could easily fit a player like Besser. You go uh, like, oh, the hometown connection. He could add something. Problem is, you look again, you look at the offseason. They only have $15.5 million in cap space with 13 roster spots to fill, including a second contract that they need to sign for stud RFA and Matt Boldy. Um, it just, it's the, it's the two years beyond the season that make it a lot more difficult for the Canucks to sort of find an optimal fit and secure, um, secure value. Because look, if Besser was just a rental, if he just had the season, I think there'd be a lot of teams that, um, that would be interested. So that really, in my opinion, sort of, um, complicates, um, the, the sort of fit and, and how you can, how you can make a, a trade potentially work. But big picture, though, I mean, when you look at some of the onerous contracts the teams are trying to unload with the amount of term on it, like two years big picture shouldn't be that onerous for most teams to deal with. And I know that right now, I think you've got five teams that have basically 80% of available cap space uh, today. I mean, obviously, that changes as you get closer to the trade deadline. But, um, you, you know, when, when you've got two years left on a player like that, it seems palatable. There's still going to be... Opposed to an, as opposed to an Ekman Larson contract. Yeah, there's still going to be some teams interested for sure. I, I mean, um, would a team like the Islanders have um, have interest, especially after last summer where they couldn't um, add any scoring um, to their forward lineup despite how they needed to upgrade there? Uh, the other interesting thing, watching Montreal sort of come in, and I was thinking of different scenarios where, the, where this sort of could work. Um I, I looked at Montreal and I was thinking to myself, and I was actually even having a conversation with uh, Tony Marinero, who um, is a Canadiens reporter, um, has a podcast, just actually had Roberto Luongo on his podcast. And he was sort of asking me from the Canadiens' perspective about Besser and um, whether that could work. And at first glance, that seems like a, a sort of odd fit where it's like Montreal is not really in a position to contend now. But this is where Besser's young enough to where a team like Montreal could look at Besser. And it doesn't have to be Montreal specifically, but just to kind of prove a hypothetical, a team could look at Besser and say, "We can acquire him. Hopefully, re- rehabilitate his uh, his value for a couple of years, and then when he's a rental in the 2024-25 season, if he's rebuilt his value, then we could actually peddle him for for a significant return. We could sort of prop up his value and actually get a decent package back." Um, especially if at that point, at that deadline, we retain um, retain some cap it. So um, if I was in the Canadiens' shoes, I would 100% be thinking to myself, what if I asked the Canucks to maybe take on take on an expiring contract like Evgeny Dadanov, which the Canadiens um, are, you know, presumably Dadanov's contract expires at the end of this season. And the Canucks are really only focused on cap space for next season. So that's why it would kind of make sense from the Canucks' perspective to potentially take a deal back. But if I'm Montreal, I'm saying, I'm considering at least, well, why don't I just, you know, ask the Canucks if they'll take take back this Dadanoff contract. I'll take back Besser. He's 25. He can fit with this um, young core that we're building offensively for the next couple of seasons. Maybe he's a long-term fit. Um, maybe we can, we can resuscitate his value and then sort of get real value out of him, kind of similar to what they've uh, they've done with Sean Monahan, right? The Flames paid them a first round pick to um, to take his contract on, and now with the with how well Monahan's played, especially on an expiring contract, 
the Canadians could trade Monaghan for a pretty decent, you know, a pretty decent haul um, at the deadline, right? And so that they've kind of created value out of thin air. And and I wonder wonder if a team could maybe look at it from that lens and be interested. So um, that's at least something to consider from uh, a more positive perspective in terms of whether they could there could be um, significant interest. How much do you think what the Canucks have done in the last twenty four to forty eight hours here with Besser going on the Pedersen line and Kuzmenko being dropped to the third line is an effort to rehabilitate Besser's value and to potentially deflate Kuzmenko's value? To be totally honest, I don't think like that that would make logical sense, but I just don't think that the organization is in good enough is well synced enough for that where. I think we've seen earlier in the season, for example, like if this organization from top to bottom thought from the perspective of maximizing asset value, then Connor Garland earlier in the season would have never been scratched, right? Uh, the intent to scratch Besser in the first place and all the headlines that came with it, um, everybody in the league knows at this point that would have never happened. They would have just put Besser in that spot in the first place. I simply think, especially given the spot that Boudreaux's in where he's coaching for his job. I don't think that he's necessarily worried about what management sort of like what maximizing the value of their assets. He's just worried about putting together a winning product. And I think even from that perspective, the Canucks sort of were running into an issue where that third line, when it had Besser, Garland and Dries on it, it wasn't producing enough. It wasn't reliable enough. I mean, I, I cited the example earlier in the Washington game, for example, where after an offensive zone start, Boudreaux had to, you know, the club's down multiple goals, needs offense, TV timeout, the whole bench is rested, and, and he had to send out the fourth line because he didn't have a third line that could reliably produce because Garland was really struggling and, and Besser and Drys can't really drive a line. So I think, you know, I at least wonder if part of it wasn't just to get Besser going, but also could Kuzmenko give a spark to the third line, which is exactly what he did uh, against Montreal last night where he made um, he made a great pass along the wall off the rush to set up Garland, who finally broke his scoring drought. I simply think it's um, it's a matter of um, of Boudreaux trying to trying new things and, and, and looking at it from a pure lineup perspective, even though I think that's what the Canucks should be trying to do, at least from Besser's perspective, is trying to sort of maximize the value of their assets and kind of deploying them accordingly. Well, we are uh, two-thirds of the way through the show, and we have yet to speak about goaltending, because you know I, I tend to like to do that from time to time. But uh, let's I want to talk about that, Bo Horvat, and a few other topics when we come back. So, Harm, we've spent a lot of time talking about Bo Horvat, and yet there he is again with another key goal at a key time for this game. 20 goals in 29 games. An incredible start to the season for the Canucks captain. You know, what more can we say about what he's done? And, you know, I've I've said before that if you gave me two players that I'd love to see the Canucks keep, one would be Bo Horvat and one would be Luke Shen. And I know that that's beyond counterintuitive because those are the two players they've got with some level of asset value. I don't think they're going to get enough for Luke Shen to make it worth a trade. Like, I think it's going to be a fourth-round pick. And for that, um, you're not going to have to overpay to keep Luke Shen in your building. And again, I know I'm in the minority. Um, you know, and Bo Horvat, we talk about the lack of character and mental toughness and lack of resiliency and fragility this team shows night in and night out 
with maybe yesterday being some level of exception because they did show some resiliency they don't normally show, Bo Horvat, in this situation, in the final year of his contract, where the organization has made a choice to prioritize something else, you talk about a player who embodies the Sedin way, the past Canuck way, where character and accountability is everything. You know, you look at the type of player who, you know, the Canucks still talk about, maybe they don't talk about, but certainly this was a team that was so invested in the community previously. This group of Canucks is not that. Bo Horvat still is that. He is everything that's good about this team, yet the organization chose to prioritize others. Last year of his contract, it could go incredibly bad. It could go incredibly good. And this guy is pulling out the Alexander McGillney card with his performance in a contract year. Like he has been incredible. He has been consistent. He's been able to put all the distractions aside. And this guy continues to play. And, you know, you have to wonder if even he wants to continue to be a part of this long term. How impressive is what he's doing right now? Because he just seems to get better by the game. So impressive. It's as if the outside circumstances don't affect him at all. He's totally unfazed, which I mean, we've seen it where the pressure of a contract year, a lot of players sort of get the yips and they feel that um, they, they feel that sort of um, expectation that they've got to score a lot. They've got to produce a lot. They've got to set themselves up for life in terms of the next contract they sign. And they're just not ready to deal with a lot of the highs and lows that come with that. Horvath's performance speaks for itself, and we've seen that he's just a player who, when the pressure is at its highest, he consistently plays not just his best hockey, but above that bar. He plays above the absolute apex of what you think he is as a player. We saw that even in the 2020 uh, playoff bubble, where he was just a goal-scoring machine consistently, you know, whether it's Bo Horvath, I don't know if I've said this before, he's... He's made me believe in the concept of clutch. There aren't a lot of players who I look at, whether it's on this team or around the league, where I'm like consistently, that player's clutch. I can always count on that player to play above the 100% point of what they're capable of when the team needs it most. Horvat's one of the rare players who does exactly that. And it doesn't matter what job or responsibility you need out of him. It doesn't matter if he's even well-equipped enough to, for example, handle tough matchup minutes or constantly be taking defensive zone starts, being leaned on to win seemingly every face-off, whether it's a power play goal, whether it's needing a spark at even strength, he's done it all. And I think the it's been really impressive to see how well he started dominating in front of the net is the biggest change I've seen for maybe years past because we've we've seen in, in previous seasons, we're not it's not new to see him, let's say, for example, dominating in the bumper, bumper spot of the first unit power play. He's always done that. What I maybe haven't seen as much compared in, in previous years that I have seen now is whether it's been the tips, the deflections, the rebounds. He's just dominating the paint in a, where, in a way that, uh, he ha- that he hasn't previously done before. I think a lot of that is the hard work that, that he put in the offseason. It's, it's paying off remarkably. and. I think at this point, he's um, he, especially with the way the center market is trending, he's now put himself in a position where 
going into the season, I didn't think that he realistically could have garnered $8 million. I think it's now a realistic conversation about on the open market for another team, he could potentially be worth that type of dollar figure. 60% in the circle again last night as you talk about that part of it. And, and like I said, for me, uh, you know, and I know others would prioritize, you know, Pedersen, Hughes, uh, Demko, all of that. But um, wow, uh, I love so much of what Bo Horvat brings, not just as a player, but as a person. I think the Canucks absolutely got it wrong when they prioritized Miller over Horvat. And we'll see how it ends. You know, one of the things that there was actually a bit of a discussion on as well, I think Pierre Lebrun reported it uh, in The Athletic that um, as far as JT Miller's concerned, he still wants to be a part of the solution. You know, we've, we've talked about the fact there's no trade and his new contract kicks in on July 1st. So the Canucks still do have a window to trade him. Uh, and he certainly hasn't gone to the team looking for that. Uh, he still wants to be here, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how much interest there would be in a player like JT Miller at this stage. I mean, I think you'd have to offer a lot to have somebody take that contract given the way the year is gone. But um, the other side of JT Miller, he can be a fun-loving guy from time to time. We've seen the surly side. How about JT Miller in the locker room? He's uh, brought a smile to your face. Yeah, I was good. Uh, I really wanted to sort of bring this up. Legitimately, out of all the thing, out of all, all of the sort of things involved with being back in, back in locker rooms this season, my favorite part is waiting to see whatever joke JT Miller cracks up. Like, he's legitimately such a troll and and legit comedian there. I mean, we were after morning skate. Um, it was a huge, you know, media pool because Montreal has, has so many visiting reporters. I've honestly outside of Toronto, never really seen anything um, like it. Anyway, the way it kind of works is when media sort of requests to speak to certain players, PR will kind of write their names on the board or sort of their, their numbers on the board. So it's like, you know, you might walk into a locker room and it's like 40, 43, 53, um, and, and whoever, right? And and that way the players know when they come off the ice for practice or morning skate that um, that it's, you know, to stick around, that, you know, people want to chat. So with uh, with there being a, a lot of media members, I think there were six um, six six guys on uh, on the board this time. The whole media pool walks in. JT Miller turns to uh, Vic, who's uh, who's a PR staffer, and goes, "Are you just writing everyone's name on the board? We should do." And then he's like, "We should just do a team wide press conference." And you know, the other you know whether it's those moments or situations like I think you know it was almost a month ago where you know a player was having a, a scrum um, at the front of the room. JT Miller's at the back, just sort of sitting in a stall, and he's just trolling, trying to bait a media member where. He is talking to Connor Garland, who's sort of like on the other side of uh, the room, and and in, and he goes in a really loud voice, intentionally. Oh, Garley, you mean that thumb injury that nobody knows about? Just waiting for a media member to kind of like whip their head around and sort of take it seriously, uh, and to sort of ask and be like, oh, like what's what's going on, and and to then you know sort of be like, gotcha. Um, or there was a situation where you know, I was interviewing Besser. Um, after a Sunday practice, they had just won against LA and he'd scored a couple goals. Now I'm in this middle of, I'm in the middle of this conversation with, uh, with Brock. He's sitting next to him. JT walks it, walks into the room, cracks up and goes, um, couple goals and everybody wants to talk to you. And, you know, Besser, you know, just sort of laughs it off and kind of like loses his train of thought about, you know, whatever question I'd ask. And, and at this point he's just, just like trying to, you know, refocus. 
at this point, Miller just starts staring at Brock, just like trying to make him uncomfortable. And a couple other guys in the locker room kind of like start following suit. And, um, you know, Bass is like, oh, like now everybody's listening and, he, and he's kind of laughing. And Miller then goes, all right, please go on just to sort of say, like, I'm done bothering you. And then so it takes a couple moments for Brock to kind of regain his, um, you know, regain his thoughts, you know, get in the clear. He remembers the question, gets about four, four words deep into his into a sentence. And then JT interrupts and goes, Bruce, there it is. Can you say that? <laughs> he, I don't know. It's just I, I, it's, it isn't as funny when you explain it. But when, when you're in the moment and just the timing of how Miller trolls, um, it's legitimately my favorite part of being in the locker room. Well, and there's two sides to JT. So uh, oh, yeah. as much as he as much as he can be surly, comedian. yeah. No, I, it, you're right. Uh, there there are two sides of it, but you've got to appreciate it. Um, goaltending, real quick, because we we do want to get into a completely offbeat topic in a sec here. But goaltending. So Spencer Martin's getting his first run now, right? Where we we've you know the backup quarterback everybody loves. You know, you you play a few series, everything's in a controlled environment. The other team doesn't blitz as much. You look great. And and certainly we've all felt that Spencer Martin has been a better goaltender for the Canucks um, than Thatcher Demko has, given his sample size. We understand the context around it, but Martin has produced or performed at a, at a higher level relative to expectation than Thatcher Demko has. And now Demko's hurt. So now it's Spencer Martin. And certainly in the month of November, their usage was almost identical. I think Demko had just one more start. And uh, there was certainly a debate about whether or not Demko should be playing more to get his game back versus whether or not he should earn more time. And now we finally saw our first real stinker from Spencer Martin with those first four goals in a very quick span in the first period. The first two weren't real good. Short side goal. uh, He got a piece of the Nick Suzuki goal. Kevin Woodley said, well, most goalies wouldn't have even got a piece, so it looked worse than it was. But I think you got to stop that shot. Um, What do you take away from that performance? And is that just going to happen more that we see him play more? Yeah, it is a concern. I think we all kind of expected it. It's kind of like when you have a seventh defenseman who draws into the lineup. A lot of times they'll look totally competent or even let's say like a bottom pair defenseman who all of a sudden is catapulted into a top four role um, where let's say like you, you even see it sometimes with like whether it's Kyle Burroughs or Oscar, Oscar Fantenberg back in the day where it's like third pair guy bumped up in the top four because of injuries or whatever. And the, for the first few games the player actually adjusts pretty well. I mean, I'm not saying they play the lights up, but they look competent in that role. And you're thinking, all right, this might not be as catastrophic as I um, as I immediately imagined. But it's after the first few games where, uh, whether it's, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily adrenaline or, or whatever it is, it feels like slowly but surely they're, you know, them playing higher than they should in the lineup starts to catch up with them when they're expected to do that on a night-to-night basis consistently. And I think that's what we've started to see from Martin, where we all know he's capable backup at this point. That's not a question at all. But in the number one spot, he's totally kind of being thrown into the fire in the deep, and especially on a team where on the Canucks, at 5-on-5, on the PK, it's always going to be a rough defensive environment. If this was a team like... um, you know, like Vegas or 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 whatever team that has a stronger defensive environment where they don't concede as as many uh, crossing passes. They're uh, tighter defending the box, the middle of the ice, uh, d- tighter defending rush chances. You could it'd be easier, obviously, for Martin or any other backup goalie in that environment to maybe 
hold to sort of stem their own and, and, and hold their own essentially. It's a tough spot for Martin to be in, and we're seeing the seams start to emerge. And in his last four four appearances now, we're looking at uh, an 836 save percentage. Even for the season, he's now down to an 892 save percentage. Again, he's been totally fine as a backup, but he's not ready to sort of take on this type of responsibility. And what it means in the bigger picture is with Demko out potentially for six weeks or longer even, I think it's tough to expect this team to make up a lot of ground in the standings because, yeah, the team, because of Demko's struggles, hasn't had great goaltending goal to this point. But you're also looking at a point where the offense, whether it's been at 5-on-5, five five, the power play, has been operating pretty much at its absolute peak. Like, I don't think this club has a lot more to give up offensively. And now that, or sorry, uh, has a lot more to give offensively that there isn't more potential for them to sort of produce more necessarily. And with the goals against efforts being in a state of flux with, with this injury to Demko and with the uncertainty in net, I don't think that you can really expect them to shore up the goals against in this next stretch of six weeks or so, which means I have worries about them being able to, to make up ground and um, you know, may, worries maybe might not be the right word because I don't know how many people still expect them to um, contend for a playoff spot, but if you're still on that bandwagon, if your ownership or, or whomever, if you just want to see playoff hockey in Vancouver, that's a legit concern. I uh, can't argue with any of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, look, and I don't want to overplay it, right? We don't know what Spencer Martin's going to do in a big sample size. We'll, we're about to find out. Uh, certainly what happened against Montreal wasn't good. Uh, that's a team that can... The Canucks want to play loose to begin with. And the way Montreal plays, it certainly lends itself into getting into that type of game as opposed to a game like the Arizona Coyotes, right? Yeah. Uh, where it just kind of, the game gets bogged right down. But, um, you know, we're going to see, right? There's, there's a number of opponents coming up that you would think on the surface are winnable games for the Canucks. But at the same time, they might be teams that attempt to play Montreal Canadiens hockey and the Canucks will take that bait. They will take that bait. And that's going to leave the goaltender with a lot of stress on him. So let's see what it looks like. Hey, listen, you wanted to change gears completely. And you you basically are trying to age shame me. Yeah. No, exactly. So what's what 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 are we what are we talking about here? We're talking about current rap because you actually think that current rap exists. I just think it's noise and nonsense as opposed to 80s and 90s rap. Like, what, what, what are we talking about here? Okay, well, so the Canucks posted their graphic of everybody, I think at this point, kind of knows what Spotify rap is. You're able to kind of see... Um, yeah. What music you listen to, and the Canucks posted their. Um, you know, a few players kind of participated, posted their um, you know songs or or top artists, and um, obviously Elias Pettersson had uh, had Drake. I, I don't know if you've heard of him, Farhan. Have you have you heard of Drake? Yeah, he was Are that you? annoying guy at all the Raptors games. Oh wow, I'm surprised. Yeah, you, no, I, I'm surprised you know uh, he, he was he was the modern day Spike Lee. Okay, that's going too far. Drake is Drake's legit good. Don't Drake, you know what? Drake is Drake is Drake is good. Drake's a good artist. I I was far too annoyed. You know, I, I was trying to like the Raptors, and then I saw Drake doing his act, and I, you know, I actually like Drake's music. I, I like his non-rap songs because they're you know he he does actually do things other than rap, and there are some other songs from Drake that I like, but the harder he tries to get into like. His latest album is even more hardcore rap on the back end of it. And I, it's just, 
See, I actually it's, think it's on brand with what current rap, and I don't like it. So it's let, let me get this straight, Farhan. You like the Lover Boy Drake? Okay. Now, now my son's just walking the in, in my, the door. And he's like, "What are you talking about, Dad?" <laughs> well, okay, so you like the in my feelings for, Lover for Boy everybody Drake. For, for everyone that, that you know. My son, who's fourteen, is closer to Harm's age than I am. So get out of here, kid. <laughs> Wait, so anyway, let me get the story. You ahead. like the Lover Boy? You like the Lover Boy Drake? The in uh, my I feelings. I so far as to call it Lover Boy Drake, but. There, there are some other songs I have a little more appreciation for Fair than enough. some of his current rap. Well, what I wanted to do but, was um, get into, you know, again, with the age difference, I, I wanted to impress you with uh, some of the uh, modern rapper names that, uh, that, uh, that exist with, with some pretty big artists and kind of get your, kind of get your take big, rapid fire here. Big, yeah, big. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, really big. All right, so let, let's go Couldn't off even here. sell out Rogers Arena, buddy. Couldn't even sell out Rogers Arena. Most of today's rappers. All right, these, these are these are. Let alone BC place. St- you you just hate modern rap, eh? You just like you won't even let me start. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. All right, all right. These amazing modern rapper names. Let's go. Lil Baby, Da Baby, Lil Nas X, Saweetie, Ski Mask, The Slump God must be a, an homage to Erickson's time in uh, Vancouver. Uh, S- Lil Pump. Young Lean, who's part of the music collective group called Sad Boys Entertainment, Twenty One Savage, and Young Boy Never Broke Again. Great, love the names. Awesome. You aren't going to slam them. I-, I expected like this big, like oh, like there are a couple of little baby songs that, that I've heard that I actually don't mind. But uh, look, you got to go back to Ice T. You've got to go back to first of all, how about Snoop? Right, like because that is like that's legit, real, big time rap that transcends you know if you saw snoop at the super bowl you'd think this guy was really really good oh yeah he's and and he's 30 years into his career the rappers you're talking about you're not even going to know their names there'll be some other ridiculous name next year here's the name of the newest rap group or rap um band or what do we call rap art we we just call them artists now or is there some different name for rap groups okay so i'm looking forward to hearing this group, I've heard great things about it. They're going to debut their first album next year. It's called No Harm, No Foul. I've never heard starring of Starring Harmon. Oh. Starring Harmon. Well, because you're featuring in them. Oh. Well, I know what. <laughs> if, I, if I rapped, I legit would lose every podcast listener ever. No Harm, No Foul. I want to hear it. Ta- talentless. It would, it would be a nightmare. All right. Only if only no special appearances by no special appearances by Drancer. Well, I actually need him for the thesaurus. He'd be, you know, the funniest, Drancer, funniest thing Drancer is would be like Eminem, just like pulling out the dictionary and the thesaurus. And you're just like, what are these? What do these words even mean? Yeah, he'd wear the hat like Eminem. And that would kind of be the extent of it, because if you've ever heard and, and you have, you know what I'm talking about. There'll be a song during a TV timeout or during a promo and they'll come back to play and you will hear Drancer humming that song. And it could be a rap song. It could be a heavy metal song. It could be anything. And he'll be humming it in opera tones. It's very uncomfortable. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, it doesn't mind me just because I don't like, I, I don't notice things very, very well. Like I've definitely noticed the humming, but I just kind of like, but, but listen to out. what he's humming. Like think of the song that comes out of the break. And he'll be humming that song and he'll be humming it in, in opera tones 
And it could be like some crazy rap song. It could be, it could be anything. It could be ACDC and he'll be humming it in opera. Honestly, I just noticed the, noticed the like the swear words or whatever when he's like losing a division three college basketball bet or something. Like I, I just noticed the, I just noticed him with the betting more than anything else. So that's, um, I've, I've, I've never actually really paid attention to the, to the singing, but, um, I think we've I think we spent a pay, good chunk of time attention. on rap here, so yeah. Pay attention next time. Well, I'm gonna have to record it on my phone and we'll play it on the next pod. Uh, but again, no harm, no foul. Everybody, look for it. Also, look for actor John Hamm who joins Sean Gentilly and Jeremy Rutherford on the Athletic Hockey Show. That show's out now, and you can follow the Vancast on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating and a review. Uh, you can not only hear the podcast with John Hamm, but you can also see it now as well. Subscribe to the Athletics uh, NHL YouTube channel, youtubecom show. You can get a new subscription to the Athletic for just two dollars a month for twelve months. That is a great Christmas gift when you visit theAthletic.com/Vancast. Our show return ne- returns next week, but you can also catch a live room tomorrow night, Wednesday night, after the Canucks game at, at San Jose. Uh, myself, Drancer, we've got a special guest coming on, and then that will be uploaded, and uh, you'll be able to hear that on Thursday as well. So we'll see what other musical, you know, whatever other musical topics we can bring in for the next episode. We need we need Demet to maybe play some of your favorite rap artists, not named Drake. Yeah, Jack Harlow. Pump some, uh, pump some Jack Harlow in there. See, that's a reasonable name. It's it's not like some of the other ones you just pulled up. Yeah, well, I actually don't listen to most of those names. I just tried to find uh, the most uh, most most reason most uh, most unreasonable, really big artists with, with those with, in terms of the names. No harm, no foul. Listen to it. It'll be available <laughs> on Spotify coming up in the new year. Thanks for listening. We're back next week. <laughs>